mentally keeping yourself stable is incredibly hard. And I've had times when I've 100% felt myself slipping. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst Proud of the plane. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Private Matthew Williams is currently serving in the Australian Army. He had one deployment to Afghanistan, but his greatest fight has been against his brain cancer. I spoke with Matt over Skype about his time in the Army and the work he's doing today to make his illness history. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Alex. So, Matt, where were you born? I was born in Victoria in a small country town called Warrnambool. I actually grew up on a farm near Warrnambool, and from there I joined the army and then moved up to Wagga from there. So you grew up on the farm? Yeah, it wasn't a working farm. I grew up more of a small hobby farm, and my parents both worked in the major city, uh, Warrnambool being a small city next door. So what were the kind of main things you got up to in your childhood? Were you sporty, outdoorsy? Me and my brother, we raced BMX from the age of four. Actually, I should say we were competitive in uh, BMX racing from the age of four. So we did our first state titles when we were four or five years old. And then from there, both did 10 consecutive state titles as well as Australian titles. And then my brother, he moved off into the downhill mountain biking scene and um, has done world titles around the country and around the world, living in Whistler in Canada for a bit racing and from there. I know Warrnambool's got an RSL presence there did that ever impact on you or did that take your notice as a child or a teenager? To a small degree, yes. I went to a few dawn services at the RSL in Warrnambool. But as far as an actual sort of influence on me joining the army, not really. Do you have any military history in the family? Uh, actually, very little compared to a lot of guys I know. My pop was a reserve sergeant on my mum's side, but other than that, not really much at all. Then when did you first start to feel a pull towards the military? I think if you asked my mum that, my parents would be forever. I've always wanted to join the army. You know, as far as me as a toddler in sort of camouflage gear and getting around and doing whatever. So as sort of as long as I can remember, it's something I've wanted to do. So when did you put your hand up and sign the dotted line? It was during year 12, the very sort of start of year 12. I can start sort of the, the U session and the process from there. I graduated my VCE in year 12, and two days later, after graduating, I was in Kapuka. What year was that? 2014. Okay, so did you have an idea of what goals you wanted out of an army life? I mean, 2014, Operation Slippers coming to an end in the Middle East. We're starting to wind down some of our overseas stuff. Later that year, of course, ISIS sort of rears its head and becomes a bigger presence. Do any of those factors of larger geopolitical scene creep into your mind or you just wanted to join the army, get the uniform on and the rest didn't matter? I think it was more join the army, get the uniform on and sort of whatever comes, comes. You know, there's always a conflict somewhere. <laughs> there's always going to be things that the army's involved in no matter what's happening. Um, so from sort of that point of view, it was I want to get in and once I'm in and wherever it takes me, I'm, I'm more than happy to go. So how's Kapuka? 
Kapuka, um, for me, was a massive, a massive struggle. Of anything I've done in my career, the hardest thing by far. I think some people adapt to it really well. Me, as a barely 18-year-old kid coming out of um, high school, I did whatever I wanted, so to speak. And then into just such a regimental lifestyle was super hard for me. And it was so far the most challenging thing I've done. Not physically, just the change. A bit more of a country lifestyle. You didn't do anything like cadets and nothing with that sort of hierarchical structure that really compares. So I can imagine that was the mentality, the psychology was the biggest adjustment for you. Oh, massively, massively. And so how was the physical? Was that much of a challenge for you? No, not at all. I actually uh, found that I lost a little bit of fitness during Kapuka. Coming from in year 12, I was super sort of down the line with what I had to do physically. And then I actually struggled in the first few weeks with like, yeah, of course you're tired because you're doing long days, but they have to bring everyone up to a certain standard. And I actually found the PT wasn't that hard at the time. Well, at least if you were going well at the PT, that must have given you some encouragement while you have these directing staff and sergeants and all that screaming at you that at least you know you're not necessarily at the front of the pack but you're this you know keeping a solid pace with the group oh for sure and there's always heaps of guys doing push-ups and burpees in their room at night anyway <laughs> so that just happens and they encourage that as well if you're going from kapuka into singleton where the fitness standards are so much higher to do some extra stuff on the side what was the size of the group like you were undergoing basic with? I entered right at the end of 2014. So it was November 25th and we actually didn't have a sister platoon. So most platoons will have like, you know, 31 or 32 platoon as a sister. Mine didn't, but it was a very large platoon being 34 Delta for memory. I think it was about 50 people. And then, of course, it chops and changes throughout the 80-day course at the time with a lot of back squatting and people um, not making not up to stands of things and switching in and out. I think only it was low 20s of the original group actually went through the same platoon and didn't get back squatted at the time. Yeah, because that's quite a large starting figure and I imagine you're meeting a lot of characters from all sorts of walks of life around Australia. Yeah, and it was actually funny because I started on the November 25th. We did like 13 days of Kapuka. And then we had a Christmas stand-down period, so we got like two weeks of leave. It was almost like starting Kapuka twice because <laughs> I don't, we'd only done like two weeks and then we went on leave and sort of, oh, that never happened, and then back to it after that for the remaining 10 weeks or so. That's a good test of discipline, actually. Undergo the new PT regime, which you're finding not too challenging. Then you have to go home and try and sustain it yourself over Christmas of all times of the year <laughs> and then get back into it. Yeah, I know. No one really sustains over Christmas, I think, as, as, um, as uh, motivated as you can be. You test a different kind of endurance over Christmas. Yeah. How was Singleton? I had a conversation about this with a few mates just the other night. It was the best time of my life. Um, at the time, I didn't appreciate how good it actually was. You work super hard Monday to Friday, to a degree Monday to Friday, but you pick up so many new skills. Although you're working hard one week, you know, you're doing urban for a week or you're learning a new weapon, like new high-explosive weapon systems. And then come Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday, all the boys are on the digger shuttle bus into Newcastle, all the boys are on the beers. And then, you know, sort of as my career goes on and I see a lot of guys leaving, getting out, sort of, you know, growing up a bit, <laughs> that is almost gone a bit. And I think I reflect on Singleton being, geez, that was such a good time in the Army. Like we were super fit, super young motivated and all just it was we're all so close to time what did you train as in your initial employment training so i trained as a rifleman um, in the infantry 
And where did you end up being posted to? Uh, so I came to 7RAR in Adelaide, which I still am uh, posted there. And when do you finally get your first overseas deployment? I deployed in 2017 on Operation High Road as our fourth protectional element number seven as a PMV crew commander. Before we come back to that deployment, how were your couple of years in the Army in 2015 and 2016? How are you finding life in Adelaide? It was a bit of a challenge sort of coming into a new city. Although I knew a lot of guys in the Army, I didn't really know anyone not in the Army, but I've grown to love Adelaide. And I went here with some of my best mates anyway. But anyone who was in 7 RAR sort of in 2015 will know it was such a high-tempo period for us. The field, some of the field was insane. Um, that being said, it definitely made me a better soldier. And everyone who was there who remember people talk about still on oh, 2015, 2015 this. But 2015, 2016, you know, the skills you pick up and being high tempo, there's heaps of courses, there's heaps of field. Although at the time you might be like, oh, God, I'm just getting run out. You reflect on that and it's like, well, gee, you know, I've done two years of, you know, service, but realistically that could have been like four years anywhere else, sort of of experience. I found 2016 actually more sort of interesting for myself because I was not senior at all time, but I was, I was more senior than I was, you know, done six or seven months in the battalion. Um, and at that point, there was a lot of new guys. So guys like sort of at my experience at the time started getting on, you know, um, heavy weapons courses, CFA courses, and, you know, rumours of a deployment coming up. And you sort of start knowing your job role better. So instead of learning the whole time, you're doing things. On the job, you start seeing, like predicting, oh, well, we've stopped here, we're going to now do this. And it, I actually found it a lot more enjoyable. So are you a private still at this stage or are you going for junior NCO or something else? I'm a private at this stage. I did my sub two SIOS for corporal at the end of last year and I was panelled for JLC at the start of this year. But with everything that's gone down with my, uh, my health, it hasn't been a reality at the moment. Fair enough. When do you learn you're being deployed to Afghanistan officially? It was actually at a boozer parade at the end of 2016. We had, I was in Alpha Company at the time and Bravo Company was deploying. Now, there was a move of a number of Alpha Company soldiers over into Bravo to deploy with them. I couldn't remember the exact date, but it was right on the end of 2016 that my boss at the time, a lieutenant, sort of hit me up like, Willie, you're going to be one of the guys moving over. I was using signaler at the time, although I wasn't qualified as SCCC, which you don't need to be. And it's just handy. He got me as his SIG and he said, yeah, you've sort of proven yourself and I'm going to move you over into Bravo Company to deploy. How was the flight over there? For me, it was, it's a bit of a nervous, anxious time. You don't know what you're walking into as best as you can sort of see uh, or on the news or on the media or through stories. You don't know what stories are on Slipper and not off high road of how things are over there. Um, so the flight to Dubai is a bit nervous. Spent a few days there sort of getting used to you know, the heat and getting issued stuff. And then we actually um, jumped on a C-17 to fly into Afghanistan, into Hkaya base. And my plane, we got you know, into Afghan, you know, they turn the lights off, you know, chuck your body armour off, everything. And then we had a build-up of ice on the wings, as the pilot told us. We actually landed, touched wheels, and then he actually took off again, saying, look, if we land, there's not the maintenance crew here to fix this aeroplane. So we're going to actually have to fly back to Dubai, and we're going to get you guys another flight. <laughs> so then we flew back, like, the four or five hours, slept a few hours there, and jumped on a C-130 in the morning, a Hercules, and flew in again. So it sort of all happened for me twice. And what was your initial impression of the country as you finally disembark? Well, I guess my first initial impression was actually looking at one of the small sort of port windows on the, on the plane and just snowy mountains. 
like I'd never seen before. Mountainous snow everywhere. And then sort of as we embark on the plane, being, you know, winter in Afghan, sort of deep winter, and I'd, the first time I've ever actually seen snow is in Afghanistan. I've never seen snow in my life and cold. Like we got off the plane in HKI, which is any, like any other sort of major airport, I guess, except you're carrying a gun. <laughs> I jumped off and just blistering cold and the smell of Afghanistan just at the time, terrible. <laughs> um, that's something that really took me a lot of time to get used to. Give me a picture of your day-to-day life in Afghanistan. What's a quiet day for you? And then what's a hairier day for you like? See, my trip, as we were force protection, you know, looking after, sort of, you know, as guardian angel role over there, I was a PMV crew commander. So we'd sort of get up, we'd get given the night before a list of people that we're taking in the, in the vehicle, and I'd have to submit that either the morning of, like, the trip out into Karga base, because I was at Karga. We'd go out there with a force protection team, and then they'd move into a certain building and then they'd do their GEA stuff and then move back out and we'll just lift capability in and out. And then a more, not hairy day, but more busy day would we would be if we actually had a run through the town, like a red zone run to another base in Kabul. We could get, you know, 24 hours notice or 15 minutes notice to put together a packs list of who's in our vehicle, what route we're going on. Whatever. A lot of the time we'd get that the night before. And I was lead vehicle for most of the runs, meaning lead navigator. So I would get a, a list of people who are in each vehicle, but then I'd also get a what routes we're going on and all the routes are named. And it was easy if I was given it, you know, prior, but there was a lot of times when these came up last minute and, yeah, here's the route. We're moving out the gate as I'm <laughs> looking at the, the names of the roads and my map going, where the hell are we going? <laughs> but that being said, it's something, if you do take the wrong route, it's just one of those things you just have to adapt and overcome and just bring yourself back on. So some of them, you know, we would do five or six red zone runs in a day between separate bases. That's just life in the army, especially if you're a premier at the front of the pack. Is it nerve-wracking being at the front of the pack? For me, nerve-wracking as far as I don't want to do a bad job. I was never nervous of, oh, we're going to, you know, the lead vehicle could be the first one hit, blah, blah, blah. I never had that sense of feeling. It was more, I don't want to make a mistake here and take us down somewhere we have to reverse out of or make a wrong turn or whatever like that. It was more from a professional standpoint than a sort of nervous Afghanistan standpoint. And how long does it take for you to settle into the role, get used to the responsibilities and the fast adaptability you have to undertake and you feel confident in what you're doing? Look, it took me a while because I've got an infantry background and my course, Bushmaster with PMVs, were literally just before we deployed. I got qualified in driving the vehicle, qualified on the weapon systems. I was already qualified on the MAG-58 on top, but I had to get qualified on the remote weapon system on top. And sort of all my navigation always has been on the ground, never in a vehicle, and you're moving so much faster. So, yeah, it did take me a while to sort of get used to what's going on over here and what the role is and what it, what it entails. But I think, you know, any professional soldier, I'll say, can adapt into it very quick. And by the end of it, you're just sort of doing things on the fly. You learn the routes. And there was times if someone said, we're doing this route, I wouldn't even have to look at a map. It would just, oh, this is, this is just where we're going, like if you were driving down the shops. The Australian Army is well known for the sense of camaraderie between its soldiers. And I'm sure you developed those bonds to a strong degree when you were back home going through all those high-tempo exercises and so on. How did that compare to Afghanistan when you're in a new company and even if you're in a feeling comfortable with the reality of where you are, it's still an overseas deployment. Oh, yeah, for sure. Look, I knew most of the guys prior to deploying anyway. And I guess the camaraderie didn't really change. You know, it was already there. The respect was already there. 
and you gain respect from people you see. And you know, there's people that aren't, and like it or not, you know, aren't star soldiers back home, but then they deploy and there's just literally a light switch in their head and they're just on it every day, just killing it. So I guess the camaraderie being, you know, the Australian sort of camaraderie is there and it's been there present forever. Are there any standout memories, something either funny or something more challenging that stick in your mind? I guess I'll never forget sort of my first, like actually leading the group, like a group of vehicles through the city. But then, the, you know, there's, there's standouts sort of every day, you know, new places you go, new things you see. But as far as one thing that stands out, not particularly. Um, there was a time we went down to an embassy in Red Zone uh, and we went to drive in and we were told vehicles would fit and our vehicles didn't even, even come close to fitting. So then we sort of got bunched in with all these, because it was a party at this embassy and all the Bushmasters, like five or six of us all got stuck at the gate, which wasn't the happiest time for a lot of people trying to get in behind us. And then, you know, we had to we had to jump out and ground guide everyone way back down through the red zone. So I'm, me and a few other members are outside the vehicles walking around trying to sort of uh, get these vehicles out. And it ended up taking us hours and hours to do. But it was one of those sort of moments of everyone pulled together, like if this isn't a really good situation to be, but, you know, nothing's gone that bad yet. So we can just, you know, keep our heads on and, and do this. And I think that's a very Australian attitude to have. Absolutely. Did you have any interactions with the locals? Personally, no, not really. Being a crew command in the vehicle, I was constantly in the front passenger seat, either behind um, a computer screen with the remote weapon system on top or out the top hatch of the vehicle. A lot of the the FP guys um, had a lot more. But as far as the Operation High Road at the moment, we're more within bases. So we're, we're working with Australian or New Zealand or American higher ranks, protecting them as they sort of go through with as the training and support. So I wish I'd had more interaction with the locals, but on my tour, that wasn't really the case. How long was your deployment? It was eight to eight and a half months. A time away was closer to uh, nine months for memory. But I found out last minute, I was actually doing a handover, uh, an extended handover with 3 r who um, replaced us for FP8. And there was a few of us stayed on a week or so longer while everyone else went home just to do that extended handover. Um, which wasn't a, a bad thing, you know, that I, I enjoyed being there, you know, the time went incredibly fast. As your tour was coming to an end, were you satisfied with the experiences you had and what you contributed towards? As far as the operation, yes. Like, you know, as far as what we deployed there to do, 100%. Of course, there are experiences I would have liked to have on that deployment of being more like an Operation Slipper deployment. You know, as an infantryman on the ground, guys want to be out in the sort of sticks and doing really infantry stuff where our op high road is a force protection trip um, where they're as, you know, close protection for people. I did a great job of what our operation was, even if it wasn't the operation we sort of wanted it to be. I was incredibly satisfied with what we did. By late 2017, how do you look back in retrospect on your personal growth from when you initially went to Kapuka to coming back from Afghanistan. I mean, you've gone from 17, 18 to 21. That's a key period of growth for any young person anyway. And then you've gone through all these formative experiences of this career start, this incredible army structure, and rather life-changing experience of being deployed overseas. How did that change your character and particularly your resilience? I'd say beyond sort of the growth you could, you could ever think. The person I was when I was in school thinking about going to Kabuka was a completely different person. You know, in that three years, I'd grown 10 years. 
And I sort of, I saw that a lot when I came back from my deployment and went back home in Warrnambool. And I saw, you know, I'd done this and all my friends had done this who weren't in the army. I actually really struggled with that because I guess all the guys I went through Kapuka, Singo, our single turn of men deployed with, we all moved up, we all matured the same rate. A lot of us were the same age and had sort of a similar outlook. And when I went back home, it wasn't that they didn't recognise me. It was I was so much more mature than they seemed. For a 21-year-old, I'd done more in my life than some people have when they're 30. But it's not a good or bad thing. It's just the way it went for me. But my personal growth from that was huge. Being actually given responsibility far beyond, you know, even sort of my job role at the time um, with things. And that, that grows you as a person massively, especially in an extended period of time. So after Afghanistan, you're back to Warrnambool for some leave, see your family, and then you're back soon on active duty in Adelaide? We came back from the tour. We had you know, a week at work, say, of decompression, and then I went on four weeks of leave, which is pretty normal. And I actually came back. My first day back was day one of Sub 2 for Corporal. So I came back straight onto a course, which was a bit like, oh, I wish, I wish I had a bit of a break here. But I think, you know, once the ball was rolling, it was just keep going with it. And that's a good thing to have a new, you know, goal to focus on. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I'm very goal-oriented like that. I need a purpose to be doing things. We'll come back to that because, Matt, when did you first start to think something might be wrong? You weren't feeling yourself. It would have been early February. Because I went on, say, five or six weeks leave over Christmas following subvert. And then I came back to work and I actually had a minor surgery, I'll say, for an ingrown toenail. So I wasn't out field at the time. Pretty common injury for infantry guys. And I just had this headache that I couldn't shake. And it was the same time that codeine had become from over-the-counter medicine. So you need a, a script for it. You could get, if you got drug tested at that time, it would it would now actually flip you over. So I was like, oh, I'll go down to the med centre and I'll see a doctor and hopefully get a script for some you know, pain medication for this headache I've got. And then from there, he sent me for a CAT scan and it all sort of went downhill for me. And what was the ultimate result of those medical investigations? So I had the CAT scan, say, on a Tuesday. And then the actual radiologist from there, he rang me and said, I couldn't get in touch with your doctor. I can't legally tell you anything, but you need to be in touch with your doctor and try and get an MRI by this afternoon. Um, so from there, I'm like, oh, Jesus, I've just had a brain CAT scan and the radiologist is now giving me a call saying that he wants me to see my doctor as soon as possible. So you go to your doctor and get the MRI? Yeah, I get the MRI, go to the doctor, and they've found a four by four, closer to five centimetre sort of shaded patch on the left side of my brain that appears to be on the motor strip. And at this point, you know, they don't know what it is. You know, it's just a shaded patch that the doctor sends me then to see a neurosurgeon and it's still, you know, well, this could be a cancer, this could be, you know, even a cyst. It could have you had a, a bad head trauma from there, from whatever, and then I, the neurosurgeon um, gets me to do a biopsy with him. So he takes a part of it and sends it away to, to the pathology and that was the longest. So it took like six or eight weeks to come back results. And that was the longest wait of my life, <laughs> that six or eight weeks to get the result from like, you know, this, I could have brain cancer, but I don't know. And when you finally got the result, how did that hit you? <sighs> Pretty hard, like, because the doctors are so vague about sort of what it is, because they're not going to sit there and go, you've got four years to live. They can't because they don't know. And the terminology around what it is is, you know, hard to understand as well. So I literally sat there and be like, is this brain cancer? And, you know, the answer is yes. And that was a pretty rough time for me. You know, being a young guy doing so much the time, 
you know, your, your sort of life grinds to a, a sudden halt. Prognosis of these is it, it's incurable. You know, they can't, even if they were to just go in and just cut it out and they didn't leave me with any deficits at all, which is very unlikely that I would, wouldn't have a deficit sitting on my uh, motor strip to my right side, is it will still grow back. It, it's, you know, something in my genetic makeup has this cancer in my brain. Therefore, you know, more than likely and that it will come back and still and then become a higher grade within time, even if they were to cut it out. You know, chemo, radio is more just postponing the growth of this. The problem is we've only had such a short window of time between actually knowing that it's there that they don't know the rate of growth. And sort of what they're doing with constants like MRI scans is mapping a rate of growth. At the moment, in the last nine months, it hasn't grown at all which is a fantastic result. But, you know, in the future with more scans, we'll be able to sort of map the rate of growth and map more or less when this can become an issue for me and the treatment from there on. Although I'm at a heightened risk of seizure with a tumour like this, the oleodendroglioma, but if I were just to stop chemo and sort of forget this ever happened, I would have no idea it was even there. The headaches were completely unrelated to the tumour. They had no involvement at all. Um, It was more just a... No idea why I was having the headaches, but yeah, that, it uh, led to the hospital and then it came out with um, cancer. When people say they believe in divine intervention, then that's a perfect example <laughs> of that. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. So, Matt, you've been documenting your journey very honestly and very vividly, primarily through your Instagram feed, and you haven't let this knock you about. You haven't let this knock you down. You have been very determined to keep living your life which is nothing short of an inspiration and you're determined to keep fit and all this other kind of stuff but also you have days where chemotherapy just completely wipes you out and destroys you for a day or even a week what has your journey been like over the past few months look i wouldn't say it hasn't knocked me down like if this knocks you around doesn't matter who you are this takes its toll it's something that you know it doesn't just go away and there's no end goal to sort of your mental outlook on this, it doesn't just end. There's no end to brain cancer. Well, I guess there is, and you end up dead. But mentally keeping yourself stable is incredibly hard. And I've had times when I've 100% felt myself slipping. And, you know, there, there are times I've seen psychologists and everything like that, which has been massively helpful for me. But, you know, it, it is a tough journey. Uh, and that's sort of why I'm documenting it. It's as much for me as it is. You know, there's a lot of people reach out to me, okay, I'm going for a similar thing or I know someone who has been or is, you know, and you're helping me so much get on with this as much as I'm a person who needs a purpose. And if that purpose at the moment isn't work, I have to be doing something. And I feel like, you know, this is something I can actually really do and I can achieve out of. A lot of people who you know, aren't psychologists would have saying to me, yeah, bucket list, you need to like, tell yourself you want to go to Paris and you want to skydive and you want this and you want that. And when I went to see my psych, he's like, no, that for you, that's the complete wrong outlook. People are saying, you've always had this attitude that if you wanted to do something, you've done it. He said, you've traveled the world a couple of times. You've got your skydiving license, you're scuba diving, you, you do everything you want to do. He said, you're a purpose-oriented person. You need a purpose for walking around each day and getting up in the morning. And with documenting, this has done uh, leaps and bounds sort of for my mental health and seeing you know, the, what it can affect on other people. The networks I've made has just been brilliant for myself. Absolutely. And I can totally get that the bucket list approach works for some people because it's a great form of a goal. It's a distraction and you get to live your best life in a way while you're facing that challenge. But I can appreciate for some people like yourself that you'd go 
for you, that would almost be like giving in. Whereas you're looking at what can I actually functionally achieve? And you've had this training in the army to look at a situation then work out well, what could be the goal, what could be the mission, then what steps do I need to undertake to achieve that task and hit go. So yeah, 100%. This has, of course, come from your character and your internal strength. But would you say the army has given you some of the skills to help handle the situation? Oh, 100%. The one skill the army almost has overskilled me into handle this is taking things into your own hands. If something's going wrong in a situation in the army, we tend to look at what can I control? And then you go to the world's end to control that, where in this situation, I can't control it. I'm relying on so many people who, you know, I may not like, you know, doctors and other people whose opinions to me, I'm like, oh, Jesus, what's going on here? And I can't control the outcome of this to a degree at all. Um, And that's sort of what I've, in my earlier videos when I started getting some traction on Instagram was I can't control my treatment at all. The only thing about this I can control is me working out. <laughs> and literally that's it. And that's a hard thing to have. The only bit of control in your life is this. But I needed I needed that as far as, well, I need something I can actually control that can change the outcome of how this goes. I think that it's a mix of your determination, your drive, and also the relatability of the challenge you face. I imagine so many people, most people who come across you on Instagram, they've either battled cancer themselves or more likely they know someone who has. I mean, I've lost a family member to cancer. It's something that's going to connect with a huge number of people. And you're showing what you can do, not just for a positive self journey, but you're also using this to help others. Your tagline is help make my illness history. So can you tell me about some of the fundraising you're doing? So the main fundraiser I'm doing at the moment, which is my first one, and you know I've had some teething issues, and I continually will, is my two-kilometre tie foot challenge in Adelaide. It's coming up on October the 27th. I sort of wanted a fundraiser that was doable for everyone, and instead of having an actual workout where it's, you know, for some people super easy and some super hard, I wanted something that is so easily paced at your own pace, like a tie foot event at work. Say your section of eight guys line up behind a tyre, the first guy does five flips or ten flips and then he falls out to the back and the next guy flips um, and where someone you know does less someone will do more and make up for it and that's what I wanted was a team effort and your individual effort massively is, is a contributor to the end goal which is getting that tire two k's but it can make up for someone who doesn't work out that much and can only achieve whatever is still just as much an accomplishment as some of the strong men coming who could flip the whole weight. <laughs> And that's something I feel real team effort with the tire flip. And plus, it's an easy thing to do. You don't need any real equipment to do it. Any gym, CrossFit box, army base will have a tractor tire there to flip. We're recording this, Matt, on Tuesday, 9 October, and this will come out the day before the tire flip, so the number will have changed. But how much have you raised at the moment? At the moment, just shy of $22,000. That's amazing. Well, my original goal on GoFundMe uh, was $1,000. And then one of the first minus, I'd say celebrities who's been in touch with me, he was a second donation of $500. <laughs> so within two seconds of me posting, I'd had $550. And then another celebrity gave me another $500. I'm like, well, right, I'm going to have to change this to 2000 and it took me a few days to reach two grand. And then I'm like, right, I'm going to might a bit in a hall and I can chew here. I'm going to push it to 5,000. If we don't make it, that's completely fine. Let's just see how we go. Five roll by 10. We're getting close to 10. And then I released my video. And within a night, we raised close to another $10,000. 
within a few hours after my video 40-second clip of me sort of typing and talking about my life came out. Within that night, I gained a few thousand followers, had 100,000 views today on Facebook and raised 10 grand in a night. And now we've raised another five or six grand on that. Well, it went viral, that video. Everyone was sharing it. And Matt, if people can't get to one of the specific tyre flip events detailed on your Instagram, how else can they get involved with tomorrow's event? Yeah, well, the main tyre flip will be in Adelaide on the beach, but there will also be a couple in Sydney and then a couple around the country. But if they can't make a specific one for me, I'm encouraging them to film or take a photo of themselves, flipping a tyre, wherever. And if they can get a team, if they can make the 2Ks, even better. Take a photo of it, post it on social media, tag me actually in the photo or the video, not just the post. And then I'll share it on my social as well. And that's an awesome to get involved anyway. And if anyone listening to this discovers the podcast the day after the tyre event or anything like that, they can still look up Matt's Instagram and follow through the donation links. They'll be up for a little while after the event. Yeah, 100%. Even before you did that video, you've created quite a dedicated following and brotherhood of support in the veterans Instagram space, as it were, whether it's Mark Donaldson VC or a bunch of other great guys in that space. So it's been actually really heartwarming just to see everyone rally around and really live up to that Aussie mateship ideal we bang on about so much. The community, when they reached out to me, it actually happened a long time before my Instagram. I forgot who it was. I actually don't really know who it was, but I think it was one of my bosses from work hit up Wandering Warriors and what other diggers below me is going through this, blah, blah, blah. And within a morning, I had sort of all the Instagram operators, you know, like Mark Donaldson, VC, and, and a heap of other, like Steve Wills, the Commando, Dan Pronk, and all those guys, in a morning, just all messaged me out of the blue. I had nothing on my Instagram at the time about my cancer. But, hey, man, I hear you going through this. I had like 20 messages of guys I absolutely idolised. And that was a big, like, oh, my God. These guys are really behind this. And the first guy to really bring it bigger was actually Dr. Dan Pronk. He put a video on him in his like bar sort of Jimmy's got, sort of saying we'd never let a brother fight alone overseas. Let's not let him fight alone with cancer once he's back home and sort of having it like a cheers to me and having a drink. And then that gained me a heap of traction really early on. This is months ago. What's your current then situation with the Army today? Because obviously your career has been put a bit on hold by all this. Yeah, so I'm still active duty per se. I'm still in the Army. I'm still 100% on the, on the payroll, um, so to speak. But chemo being what I call an active treatment, they've downgraded me and made me is unfit for military duty, which is for an active treatment like chemo. But, of course, I'm more than welcome to be in and out of work. Work has been my biggest supporter through all of this. And the guys who have reached out to me from work and given me support when I'm in work or out of work has just been insane. The seventh was out, I couldn't thank them all. From the top to the bottom of the ranks and everyone there, it's been bloody incredible. Mostly incredible for my family as well, that it's not, you know, Kane's here and Matt's part of it. Well, no, 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 my, your family's part of this too. Reaching out to my parents and no, you're part of this battalion family as well and the support for them has been amazing as well so yeah work look i want to go back to work full time that's my goal is i want to go back to, to like i was and whether it comes to reality is you know neither here nor there at the moment but as far as me working at the moment it's as much a how i'm feeling day to day like of course i don't have to go in every day or i can go in every day my medical downgrading shows that but chemo is an incredibly hard like, ended up in hospital for weeks at a time. But work is supportive of me in any sort of route I choose day to day. Well, Matt, for people who want to keep following your journey, where can they find you online? The best place is on my Instagram, which is Willie Beating Cancer. 
and that's the best way to sort of follow my journey, find out something new about brain cancer, about myself. And I know, put it that I'll respond to any message I get. 100% I'll always respond. Even if it takes me a few days, because I'll end up sometimes with thousands. Or a comment on a recent post, I'll always respond to. So if anyone wants to reach out and ask, the big thing is I'm not uncomfortable with any question at all. Like a lot of people, I oh, don't want to ask. No, no, if you want to know something about brain cancer, about my personal life, ask it. I, like, I've started this page to, to get people to know about this stuff because I didn't know about it. So I'm, as far as I can tell, I'm an open book. And so if anyone wants to ask and, you, and people want to know more, that's more than fine. Well, Matt, it's just from our chat today, it's incredible to see how you've embraced that purpose approach and you've got the fitness goals and all that to give you a overall positive outlook on what could be a very daunting, debilitating situation. And I don't doubt it has those dark emotional times for you, but you are turning this incredibly negative situation into a positive force for change. I mean, you're just raising the tens of thousands alone from this first event of yours incredible yeah and i sort of like to put out there too that it's not just funds you know it's, it's not just money that makes a difference now that i've been talking a lot with the cure brain cancer foundation who sort of head up the research in australia or at least the funding for the research and exposure is it's not just the money that makes a difference it is exposure for brain cancer the same as the movements 10 years ago with say breast cancer the exposure did just as much as the money if there's exposure then there's not just my money there's government money going into it and then sort of the research and development of new things for this comes to the forefront. And if you look at the development we've had in other cancers, say breast cancer, um, testicular cancer, things like that has been incredible just from, you know, not just the funding, but the exposure, actually getting it out there. And if you look at the treatments for them, they've come leaps and bounds where brain cancer in the past 40 years has barely changed the survival rate. But now if we bring it to the forefront, of just exposure, you don't need to donate money. If you share a post of mine and 50 other people see it, and oh, geez, this is a big thing, that can do just as much as you donating money. And I'm appreciative of, of any of it. You get mouths talking and people who own spots who can really make a difference end up overhearing it. Well, Matt, it is an inspiration to see how you tackle the obstacles on this journey. And I hope everyone shares your posts and I hope those who are able donate or participate in tomorrow's event tomorrow at the time of listening all the details of that are on your Instagram thank you so much for your time speaking with me today and good luck for tomorrow oh not any time I really appreciate it follow Matt on Instagram at willy.beating.cancer that's w-i-l-l-y dot beating dot cancer if you can, participate in or donate towards his tyre event tomorrow. And please consider spreading the word on your social media. Together, we can join forces with Matt in his fight. Find this podcast on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLPod, and on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Season 2 of this podcast finished in September but we've posted a series of special episodes this month. Over the last three Tuesdays, we released veteran panel discussion podcasts on topics such as returning home, PTSD, and life after service. Also, Angus Horden covered the Invictus Games by chatting with a gold medalist, and I spoke with Mark Donaldson VC, Dr. Dan Pronk, and Kristen Shorten about the new documentary, Voodoo Medics. And that doco is out now. Keep up to date with our podcast feed by subscribing in your app of choice. We have more great content to come this year before Season 3 starts in 2019. 
Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.